Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Mark, the CTO of MongoDB. And we discuss MongoDB's fresh take on making databases faster, more efficient, and easier to use. The importance of always being a student of life and how to make space for open and honest conversations with your employees as a manager. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, so I, I got started. I got a 4K Model 80, sorry, 4K TRS 80 Model 1. And I started programming. I just loved puzzles. And I've always loved puzzles. And frankly, I still love puzzles. And, and I'll get into that a little bit more with leadership because leadership is just another kind of puzzle. And then I, I started noticing that people around me thought it was interesting that I could program. And so I've always been kind of fed by other people and I've loved to solve problems. And I noticed that computers could solve people's problems all the way from grade book programs to jogathon programs to sum up all the money. And then eventually I got into my first real cool program was a heating program where contractors would go to people's houses in Alaska. They would write down in a calculator all of the glass and walls of their house. And then this little tiny calculator running at 10 kilohertz would crank over an hour or two what the energy savings could be if you upgraded this window or this insulation or this wall. And then they would take that receipt to the state of Alaska and the state of Alaska would actually pay for them to improve the energy efficiency of their house. Wow. It was the first public good program I ever wrote. And number one, I got paid for it. And number two, it actually helped human beings and it made me so happy. That is super cool. Wow. That's like such an awesome use case. It actually just ran on like a calculator. It ran on an HP 41 at CVX, the <laughs> one that had, I think, 16K of memory. That's amazing, man. Yeah, I think yeah. that's like the definition of writing some code that's immediately impactful. Um, yeah. So that's awesome. Where did you go from there? What was your first like major job in, in tech? So my first one that I'll tell you about was actually interesting. I got a contract from the Department of Education that helped me pay for Caltech. And... Uh, what we did is we wrote courses in accounting and legal. And I wrote all the course authoring software. I wrote all the course delivery software. I wrote all the grading software on a 64K Apple, uh, Apple II. And then what they did is they would take these courses, these computers, and they put them on carts with generators because a lot of these remote Alaskan villages did not have power. And they would fly them out to Alaskan villages and they would teach these natives, they would teach them paralegal and accounting so that they, they could then go to the cities and they could actually have gainful employment. And it was, it was totally awesome. And then I went at Caltech, I got really nerdy and I worked on semiconductor chip and um, a little bit of space stuff. Whereas I was just the computer person. I, I don't know anything about chips or about space, but I was running the computers for some teams there who were doing really cool space science and chip science. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know that you spent some time at NASA. What, what about that? So that was at NASA. Oh, that was okay, at JPL. Uh, Caltech, Caltech runs JPL for NASA. 
And it was awesome. And what we did there was I ran this one megabyte microvax. By the way, we're up to a megabyte now. <laughs> um, I ran this one megabyte microvax, which had, this is going to blow you away, up to 30 concurrent users. And we all loved it. And now the concept of running 30 concurrent users on a one megabyte machine, I think, is a joke. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so we ran all the software, which ran this lab. It did all the science. It did all the bookkeeping. It did all the grant writing. And I got to be the system administrator for 30 scientists. And I, I really just loved it. Again, you know, helping people out. I really, really liked helping people out. And along the way, databases came into my uh, uh, Department of Education contract and came into my JPL work. And I just love the promises that databases make to customers. In, in my very, very, very biased opinion, there is no other piece of software in computer science which makes the same promises of consistency, durability, correctness, availability when we can do it in all of computer science. And that has always fascinated me about databases. That's awesome. So you were working with databases throughout all of these or when was your first like job that you were 100% focused on on the database side of things? So when I was 100% focused was I left Caltech and I went to get a job at Oracle. I was the 11th member of the Oracle kernel group, which was a group that wrote the database. And for those of you Oracle users out there, I was involved in 5678. And it was such an amazing team. It was the first team I'd ever been in. And if we get into talking about leadership a little while later, we can talk a little bit about why it was an amazing team. But it was um, just this great team that developed the Oracle database. And I was running the part of the database, which was the lowest part, the service layer, the processes, the memory, the files, you know, all this other stuff that was basically like the operating system for the database. Now, for those of you people listening, this was long before Linux, long before even Unix had taken off. And at one point, we ran on 86 different operating systems. And I had to learn to write software at that lowest level of Oracle so Oracle could run on 86 different systems, only about 30 of which were Unix-based. Wow. Now, over time, obviously, Unix took over. Yeah, man, that is crazy. I've had very limited um, database coding experience, but it was uh, probably much easier. In fact, the most frustrating thing about it to me was that it was easy. Because I had before I had experience coding in Java, um, just you know, writing every line of code every time you need anything to happen, you have to write the line of code for it. Uh, but uh-huh. I worked for a while on a database in FileMaker um, that had like the database on the back end and then a uh, like kind of OS layer that you anyone could work with it normally. Um, uh-huh. And in FileMaker, they have their own kind of retrofitted coding language that you um, have to do a lot of like drag, like clicking around and selecting options in it so that it's easier if you don't know how to code. But when you know how to code, it is it can be frustrating um, just wanting to type <laughs> out and, and make it work. Uh, but uh, a lot of times things are hidden behind like menus so that it's easier for you to click through and navigate. Um, I'm... I was just, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but I was just, <laughs> that's my well, experience. I'll, I'll take it somewhere. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to have fun, I'll take it somewhere. So databases have been doing that their whole lives. In fact, SQL was a language that was explicitly created to bend 
developers' heads around how the database worked. And by the way, it was great. It was invented in 1970, uh, which I think is 51 years ago this summer. Wow. Um, and which is kind That's of amazing. Bizarre. It was first. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people listening who might not know a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, databases first really came of age in the 60s with some IBM stuff. SQL came out in the 70s. The first implementation of SQL was 1978 by a company known as Relational Technology Incorporated, which would later be known as Oracle, <laughs> by the way. And it was created where Larry Ellison got the CIA to fund him for a project to build a database and he got to keep the rights and they used SQL to build it. And then as soon as they were done with the, with the project for the government, they then went and commercialized it. And that's what became the Oracle, you know, of today. Wow. And that's kind of cool. It's kind of a cool story. And that was in 1978 and the company went public in 1984. I mean, that's amazing, right? What a crazy story. And the reason that story is incredible is because it shows how much the world really, really wanted this technology. Yeah. Wanted it enough to adopt it so fast to have a six-year turnaround going right. public. Right. Now, however, we kept building those FileMaker interfaces. We kept building SQL. MongoDB came along 40 years after the database had been created and took a very different approach. And it's one that I actually didn't know about that much when I was at Oracle, obviously, because it was before it. MongoDB believes that developers should just write in the language they want to write in. Save the structs you want to struct, save, bring back the structs you want to save, and just write in your native language. And so that's really, if you were to look at why MongoDB has been so successful, and there's a lot of reasons, and I'm not going to pin it to just one, but I would say one of the top three is this concept of just letting engineers be engineers and not making them twist their heads around the technology. Yeah. So let, let's take a quick step back before we get into MongoDB. You're the CTO of MongoDB. Uh, we haven't said that yet, <laughs> but... Um... I am indeed. <laughs> so can you give me the, and for the listeners, a brief overview of what MongoDB does? Sure. MongoDB is a uh, company which produces technology. So for those of you who might not be technologists, uh, the main piece of technology we produce is the MongoDB database. We also produce analytics software that help companies, you know, analyze their data. We produce a mobile solution called Realm, which lets people have a mobile solution that ties all the way back into the cloud and do things together. We have a search solution. We have charts. So we're kind of an entire application data platform. And our goal as a company is to help companies build applications faster and more efficiently. And it's that simple. And over time, we might change what tech we bring to the forefront, but our, our one North Star is making it easier for developers to build great applications. That's awesome. So you said that earlier that MongoDB allows developers to code in whatever language they want for their databases. Is, is that your main differentiating factor? Is that what makes you guys the best? What else makes you the best? No, there's, there's, don't get me started. There's a <laughs> lot of things. But, um, the first thing I'll tell you is we looked deeply, and the founders, not me, I just joined a year ago, but the founders looked deeply at relational technology and how relational technology involved tables, which involved things all talking to each other across many, many tables. And while what EFCOD did in 1970 was mathematically pure, it turns out it's not performant. 
Um, if you have to have a computer go look seven different places to get the information about you and your shopping cart, it's just going to be slow. So what our founders did is they tried to push relational databases. This was in 2007, 2008, 2006 as well, is they tried to push relational technology as far as, far as they could. And they ran out of steam at 400,000 transactions per second. And so they decided to go write their own database that stores the data you use near each other and retrieves it and stores it together. And that's called the document model. And it is a far more natural way for databases to store data. And it's actually a far more natural way for developers to store and retrieve data. So those two things put together, which is bring the computer the way it works best in sync with the way the developer works best. Now in 1970 and the 80s, Computers were slow and hard. Computers are so fast now. It's the developer productivity, which is the limiting factor. So if I was to say, what is it that we do best? The document model, scaling out to massive uh, systems, and just really delighting developers. If, if listeners were to walk away with those three things, natural documents, high scalability, and delighting developers, I'd be really happy. That's amazing. So what would you say are some misconceptions that people might have about MongoDB out, outside of um, like maybe they don't understand those three things or um, I don't know, just any kind of misconceptions that you hear about? So MongoDB was started in 2007 and there was this massive uptake of the technology and it was awesome. And then people started comparing it to like the relational engines that had been around for 30 years. And MongoDB was a new database and it wasn't mature at that time. And so some of the misconceptions about MongoDB are that it's not mission critical, not secure, not you know, multi-cloud, not enterprise ready. And while a lot of those things might've been true within the first 36 or 48 months of the company's founding, we're now 13 years in, I guess 14 years in, and that is not even vaguely true. We run mission critical workloads for banks like Barclays, Morgan Stanley, enterprises like 7-Eleven. Um, we run uh, travel sites, we run banks, we run trading desks. And so the biggest misconception is whether or not we're ready for the enterprise workloads of today. And, and that's, that's just not there. The other thing that people might be confused about is whether or not we run everywhere. So we started out running only on your laptop and then only on your data center. And now we run in not only the three major clouds and not only in your data center, not only on your laptop, but we also run in all the other clouds like Tencent and Alibaba and all the other clouds. And so literally MongoDB is the only database that you can't point someplace we don't run on. And we're we're really proud of that. That's crazy. How do you how did you manage that? Um, was it is it really challenging to maintain all of those relationships with different partners? I do spend a lot of time on those relationships, <laughs> and they're really good. Um, MongoDB's culture has always been just one of directed directness and candor. And so when we work with these partners, we just say we want to work with you. And we're not going to play any games between you and other partners. We're just going to have a great relationship with you. And that pervades our culture internally, this culture of candor and context and empowerment. And I just got to tell you, as a CTO who's been in a lot of companies, and I'm not going to throw any companies under the bus, 
this way we work with our customers and our partners is better than any company I've ever been at. Wow, that is a big compliment for, for the company. And I'm learning, by the way, because I've been trained by working at other companies. So I've had to unlearn some behaviors. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> okay, well, so l- let's get into it a little bit. Without naming any names, what are some of the bad habits you picked up throughout your career? And what, what are you learning right now? So the one that I'd start with is customer obsession. And there are companies out there that really focus on, hey, we think we know what's right. We think we do this. And they don't listen to their customers enough. And I learned at Amazon, I'm going to give a compliment to companies all over the place. I just won't do the reverse, (laughs) is Amazon starts with the customer first. And so do we at MongoDB. We start with what is the need. We work backwards through the needs. We see if we have a product to direct it. So that's thing one. And it has to go all the way back to the developers. So we write these things called initiative briefs that turn into initiative plans. And they go all the way back to the developer where right there in their design doc is the needs of the customer. So that's thing one. Thing two is, and I talk about this in a lot of blogs, is technical debt. There's this very weird balance between writing the right product and making it perfect and getting it to market. And that balance is something which I talk about in a lot of blogs about, I think it's time that developers stood up for themselves more. I think developers need to say, no, I know the quality of the product has to be this. So sometimes you want to release the product right now, get it out there, let customers play with it, tell customers it's not done, see what they learn. Other times, if it's like software for a bank, well, no, it's just got to be perfect. And that dynamic, I find, is often lost on developers who are early in their career, who don't know when to stand up and take a stand for the correct quality of their product. Yeah, I mean, and that's really hard, especially early in your career, to have the kind of confidence to to say no to someone that's your superior at your company. So... How do you create a culture at your company where you can encourage people to have that kind of confidence to take a stand when they need to? So I'm going to speak generally because MongoDB, we're still working on it like everyone else. And I don't want anyone to think that you know, like we're perfect. What we've done recently is we've added some questions to our quarterly planning, which, which a lot of people participate in. We do quarterly planning of the next quarter for our products. And some of those questions are, hey, does anyone want to say we're moving too fast or too slow? We've actually added that to the the list of questions we will answer in every quarterly planning. And we've noticed that if we don't ask those questions, no one will volunteer. But when we ask those questions, people start saying, yeah, I think we're actually producing a product which maybe doesn't have the right level of quality this quarter. Maybe we should delay it till next quarter. And so where I think leadership plays a role is in creating open conversations where everyone gets to say their piece in a productive and psychologically safe way. And that requires vulnerability on the top of leaders because on the part of leaders, because sometimes you're going to ask, is this the right thing for us to do? And in the next 10 minutes, you're all going to find out that you're doing literally the wrong thing this quarter, and you should probably replan. We actually had that happen about three months ago with one of my teams, where quarterly planning just went wildly off track, and we replanned the entire quarter. 
And that requires leaders to be able to go, wow, we were just wrong. And that's really hard for leaders because we're held up on some kind of pedestal where the reason we're your leader or your manager is because we're smarter than you are. And I just want to say to anyone listening out there, we're not smarter than you are. We just have a different job. And our job is to help steer the ship. And our job is to help you feel psychologically safe. We're not smarter than you are. And so help us do our job just like we're helping you do your job. Yeah, that's it. At the end of the day, it's the only difference is that's just what you're spending your time on. Someone has to do the steering the ship and spend their 40-hour week on that. And someone else has to spend their week on writing the code. Someone else has to spend their week on the marketing. Like Everyone's just doing their thing. It's not... The hierarchy doesn't like represent like your value. It's just your job and someone has to be there to say what's what and and steer the ship. Right. So hierarchy should not represent power. Hierarchy should represent assistance. So my boss, Dave, assists me. He starts our one-on-one with how can I help you this week? And hierarchy should represent assistance. So I think of an org chart as a tree that grows up out of the ground with branches and which is the reverse. It's, It's vertically flipped. And I think of myself as being one of the branches or maybe even near the root, I guess, since I'm a sea level. And um, I think of myself as supporting the rest of the tree. And it's those actual branches and the actual leaves which type the code customers care about, which answer customer questions. They're the ones which should get the nutrients. They're the ones which should see the sunlight. And we're just here to support them. And companies which have it the reverse it's a very uncomfortable environment for everybody because the employees are like, hey, I'm doing the work customers care about and not getting recognized for it. And the managers are actually being put in this unnatural position of being held accountable for doing something other than helping employees. So do you, do you get my tree oh, yeah. analogy versus the, versus the other pyramid yeah, analogy? Yeah, no, that's an excellent analogy. And it actually makes me think about another concept that I've heard come up over and over again. So a little while ago, we had on uh, this guy, Sebastian Grady. He's the president of a company called Ramini Street. They do enterprise software support um, for like SAP and Oracle and stuff. Um, and he was an excellent leader as well. And I, I say as well, because I'm loving your advice and I think you are an excellent leader, but he was talking about how it can be challenging to stay close to the customers, especially the higher up you get uh, in management, and your <laughs> yes. and your tree analogy is fantastic in terms of explaining how the management needs to be supporting the rest of the org. But I think it highlights how it can be difficult when you're the roots to and the leaves are the ones talking to the customers. It can be challenging wow. for you to get in there and talk to the customers and have a good understanding of what they want. So. How do you yeah, do it? The analogy falls through. The analogy <laughs> does. So I'll, I'll get, so yeah, but it, but in the terms of supporting people, the analogy works. But um, let me tell you how we do it. So we have a Slack channel, which has tickets in it. And I make a promise that once a day, I will click through on one of those tickets. It's just a Slack channel that streams by with the customer tickets. I click through on one ticket a day period, end of story. I look at the case. I look at the case comments. I'd say 
A third of the time I follow up with somebody and say, wow, this is really interesting. What happened here? That's thing one. Now that's an on the ground kind of thing, which might not be appropriate for a C-level to do all the time. The other thing we do is just uh, this quarter, actually, we now have support bring us our most important customer issues every week, and they bring them to the executive staff meeting that occurs every Monday. And it is right at the front of the staff meeting where we read about our most important customer interactions. And um, that's how we keep customers front and center. Now in quarterly planning, which occurs once a quarter in the middle of the quarter, product managers also bring in And what we're doing is, we did this at AWS really well, and we're bringing that to MongoDB as well, is product managers actually bring in customer examples for each of the features they want us to work on in engineering. And they'll say, this customer needs it for this reason. This customer needs it for this reason. And those customer anecdotes, I find so powerful. And so we're trying to bring that light of the customers in to every part of the organization. That's awesome. So I imagine if you're working with so many customers and with each customer, you need to have a somewhat customized solution for them so that their database works for exactly their needs. And you have teams working on that specific solution and you have another team working on another specific solution. And each team is learning very specific things that are valuable learnings for the whole organization. How do you make sure that those learnings are dispersed throughout the organization in a way that everyone can grow from the learnings of individual teams? Does that make sense? Yeah, you know, and it's a struggle. So we have reading groups. Some of our teams have reading groups where they read. Some of our teams have discussion groups. One company I was at had a twice a week voice of the customer session, which anyone could attend. And that was kind of fun, but attendance trailed off on it. So we do all hands where we do customer spotlights and things like that. And I think when you talk about learnings, we do these quarterly all hands, at least in in R&D and research and development slash engineering. And we try to share not only roadmaps of what we're working on, but more general topics. But uh, but I'm going to tell you right now, I mean, I've had some pretty good answers, I think, for some of your questions. I, we're still learning on how to do that one. I don't really know how to do it. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big it's a big challenge. Um, one of the things you'll hear me talk about in a lot of talks is the Dunbar number and Conway's law. And so Conway's law is that you kind of ship your organization. If two leaders don't like each other and they're far apart in the org, then I guarantee you their products aren't going to work <laughs> well together, right? And and you know even Satya has talked about this law and how it affects Microsoft, which I was very amused by. Um, And then the second rule I try to keep into consideration is the Dunbar number, which is typically for most humans around 70 to 75 people, which is the number of people you can trust or keep in your social circle comfortably. And what you really want to do in today's world is you want to have teams and interactions which are within the Dunbar number. You want to work with teams you trust, teams you're like, hey, let's go out for dinner or or let's have a Zoom chat, I guess, this year or whatever. And so you don't want to build monolithic thousand-person teams where people don't trust each other. And so when I talk to customers, I talk to more than one CTO a day, by the way. Um, My EA keeps track of it for me. (laughs) Um, My average since I've been here is I've talked to 500 CTOs in 400 days. Um, is 
I talk to them about how they structure their teams and how they structure their software. And I try to detect if those two things are in sync or not. And that, I think, is one of the goals of leadership that is often overlooked. Wow. So you're engaging with these CTOs, not just on like a product level, but also you're, you're helping them steer their company a little bit and lead their teams? Um, quite frankly, I would say one-fifth of my CTO conversations are product conversations. Wow. I would say that CTOs and executives in general, CTOs aren't a special branch. We live at the top of, the, of that pyramid I talked about, right? Which means the buck stops with us. In most other jobs you'll have in your life, there's someone above you, someone who can give you advice, someone who's been there before. As a C-level executive at a public company, there's no one. So we all reach out to each other and we all learn from each other regularly and we counsel each other and we, we berate each other <laughs> and we, we learn from each other constantly. And that's, that's actually one of the most rewarding parts of my job right now is learning from these other executives who've all been through so much. And that's another thing I'll say, learning never stops. If you ever think you're the master of the game, you have failed. You are always the student of the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't care what role you're in. I don't care how high you are. I don't care if you're a CEO. You are always the student of the game. For sure. Yeah. I mean, continuous learning, I think, is one of the most valuable traits you can look for in a person, like in, in whether you're looking for an employee or a trusted advisor or even a friend. You always want someone that's willing to always continue to learn and change because, yeah, as you said, you're never the master of really anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's like, it reminds me of um, in music. I, I always think it's funny when people try to debate whether like which instrument is harder to play. Um, I think that's a really funny debate because at the end of the day, every instrument is impossible to master because there's always people that are putting in an exorbitant amount of effort to get the most possible out of any given instrument. And the difficulty of an instrument and the level of mastery is relative to the other quote unquote masters of the instrument. And so when you're comparing yourself to the other people that are just pushing beyond the limits, it's all impossible <laughs> and also not impossible, but it's all incredibly challenging. There's no easy one because yeah, a level of mastery is just extremely difficult in a continuous journey that never stops. Yeah, I think that's insightful. So if you think about a graph that had, you know, uh, mastery on one axis and time on the other axis or effort, maybe, maybe effort on the other axis, visible mastery of instruments could go up really high, like drums. I can hit a rhythm within five minutes, um, but piano might take longer or God forbid the, the wind instruments <laughs> like you know, saxophone, which my son is learning, the learning curve. But then there's the real mastery curve, which is, are you really good? Which is probably different. And I think the thing that's interesting is in an orchestra, everyone has a part to play. We've already talked about that at work. You know, the marketing person and the CEO and the developer and the person who runs the front desk are all just as important to the company in terms of them playing their role. And an orchestra is the same way. 
And mastering job skills is the same way. And so when you think about the world of tech today, I think it's really interesting because there's all these frameworks out there and you can master some of them. Like literally, you can write an app against MongoDB in VS Code in 10 minutes and be putting data in and taking data out. And as much as I would love it to be the case that that makes you a master of databases, <laughs> it doesn't. And so it's kind of like the drums. We've made it easier to acquire these skills. But the one thing that I feel so passionate about is that becoming the best person you know at something should be something we all strive for, whether that is in facilities or marketing or code or running podcasts like you do. What I try, I have five children, and what I try to train my children or what I try to nurture my children is, is learn that feeling of being, oh my God, I was good at that. And I don't want my children to become addicted to all the different things people can become addicted to today, but I do want my children to become addicted to that feeling of, I was good at that, combined with the feeling of, I helped somebody. And if we could all keep that as our North Star, even as companies, my company helps people. And even as individuals, which is I'm really good at something, I think a lot of questions get a lot easier to answer. And I really am not going off the rails. You asked me 10 minutes ago about culture. The companies which I have found have the best culture are the companies who really focus on doing things well and doing good in the world to some definition of good. That is amazing. Yes, yes. So you are clearly very passionate about this. And as we discussed at the beginning, you're working from your home office. Um, and I know how challenging it is to when you're working from home and when you're, especially when you're working on something you're passionate about, where to draw the line of when to stop working and how to draw that balance. Because it's so easy to just work and wake up and work until you go to bed. So how do you, how do you create that balance? Especially, I mean, I know you just mentioned you have kids, like, how do you do it, man? So it's been a struggle for me. Um, I will tell you, I'm a little bit unique. I love working. I always have loved working. I don't work because my boss makes me work. I'm just one of those people, but I've learned that that has detrimental effects on the people around me. And so just in the last year, I've started doing things like after 6 p.m., I set the email in Gmail to deliver at 9 a.m. the next morning. Slack just this month delivered just this month delivered a feature where I can now delay sending yes. a Slack. So I think that if we all start respecting each other's time and my Slack mood, for those of you who use Slack, my Slack mood is please disregard the time or way I sent you this note and please respond in a way and at a time that is natural for you. So as we've gone into this pandemic, it's become more and more important for us to respect each other. That's side one, but it's become just as important for us to understand ourselves and know what works for us and, and stand up for ourselves. And so I think that as time goes on, cubicle farms are going away. Eight to five programming is going away. Um, you know, meetings where we all sit around a table for some reason while one person talks are going away. 
I, I really think we're going to open up lots of doors. And so I think I drifted off your question a little bit, but the net net is that I think that we all have a lot of ownership. And while I will never say that COVID is any kind of blessing in any way, what it has done is slapped us upside the head and made us reevaluate our family life, our personal value, how we eat along with people at work, and how we use our time. And if we can take that positive from all of the negatives, I think that'll be really cool. Yeah. And I think something that I've seen that's incredibly encouraging on top that's positive on top of that positive is when you look at companies that are implementing stuff, implementing tactics to respect their employees' time more. Um, I mean, just for one, work from home. And also, I was just talking, I can't remember the company I was just talking to, but they've implemented a five and four work week. So they have a full five-day work week and then the next work week, Friday's off every other week. And the coolest thing is when you get to hear about these initiatives that are going on and they study productivity before and after, and there's not a change or as was the case with a lot of companies going to work from home, productivity actually increase. And it's really, really cool to get the numbers to back up. Hey, treating people better is actually better for your company. <laughs> yeah, to get actual numbers. So I'll tell you this, our, our executive staff, me not included, because I've just been following their lead. Um, has been so good at coming up with what you know used to be the future of work, but is now the now of work. And so we let people work remotely or flexibly in office or not. And even our in-office model is only three or four, three or more days a week, right? So it's not five days a week anymore. And we let people move between those models as is appropriate for them and their lives and all that. And this concept of focusing on do the work, be creative, get along with your coworkers rather than these other metrics we used to use, which is, hey, I don't see it at your desk very much. It is so wonderful. Now, by the way, to be really clear, engineering was already there mostly, but for a lot of the other parts of the company, it's really refreshing to see to see these things happen. And, and I think that I think it's a good thing. So and, and by the way, one thing I'll point out to, to you and others is a lot of people say how hard it is to get to know people over Zoom. And I'm, I'm just going to challenge that. I mean, I'm staring at you. I see your face. I moved your face right beside the camera. You probably feel like we have eye contact. I feel like we have eye contact. I haven't been typing on my keyboard. I believe that with a little bit more effort, we can make almost as close connections over these new mediums as over the old mediums. Now, of course, getting together in person has its own set of awesome dynamics. But I think this is good because someday there'll be colonies on the moon and I'm going to want to form close relationships with those people and I won't be able to just, you know, go down to Starbucks. And so um, I want to challenge anyone who says you can't form close relationships over these new mediums and say, why don't you put a little bit more work into it? Yeah, that's a big, big challenge you're issuing there. I mean, I know uh, one day if my kid goes to college on the moon, I want to be able to stay in touch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about um, like how about goal setting in general um, for you personally and also for at like how you structure goals for your team as a leader. So I'm just curious, how do you 
structure your personal long-term goals? What kind of time frame do you think in and how do you measure those? So my long-term goals are very, very simple, which is to have a wonderful relationship with my wife and children, full stop. Everything else is there to help that. Now you might go, wait, he didn't mention work. <laughs> um, my wife found out that when I retire, I retired once about 20 years ago, and she found out that I'm not a pleasant person to be around when I'm not working. So part of me having a good relationship with my wife and kids is actually working. <laughs> so, and there was a little bit of vulnerability there. Um, my wife is probably laughing if she's listening to this. I review my goals regularly. I have a project in my to-do list manager, and this is a bit vulnerable, called Better Mark. And that items, there's, there's probably 70 to 80 items in that list, all from don't interrupt my wife to, you know, uh, you know, promote my people when they deserve to be promoted and all those things. And those things tickle me once every 30 days, 90 days, 60 days, whatever. So there's no particular cadence to them. But there is this constant reminder of better mark. Every single morning, there's a couple things from that project which have now retickled me on my list. And I decide, do I snooze them for another 30 days or am I actually going to do something about that today? So that's my personal mechanism. That's really cool. I, I think that's also, uh, it, it sounds similar to the benefits of journaling. Um, like when you're just like writing yeah. every day and it just keeps those things that you want to keep at the forefront of your mind, at the forefront of your mind. That's that's awesome. That's a really cool tool. I might try that out myself. Uh, and, and I do it on the computer because then it reminds me. I don't have to go back and review my right, journal or right. anything. It reminds me. And some of these things pop up out of my journal. I go, oh my God, I've literally not only not done anything on that, but I think I backslid. And those are the ones where I go, no, I'm going to double down and put more effort into those. Now, in terms of the company, this is an area where I've evolved from, and I'll, I'll say some company names here. Oracle had the relentless pursuit of technical elegance and still has it today. There are a lot of unbelievable engineers producing great software at Oracle today. Amazon had a different point of view. Goal setting at Amazon was about getting stuff out there as quick as possible, cut some of those corners, get stuff out there, iterate on it. And Amazon's goals were about throw spaghetti at the wall repeatedly. And, and sometimes that had some bad outcomes where you're like, wow, why do we have three things that are very similar to Elastic Beanstalk, as an example? Well, because three teams had a great idea. And, and there's advantages to that iteration. At MongoDB, we do something a little bit different. The company produces our fiscal year objectives once a year. And like this year, they fit onto four pages, I think. All of our company objectives fit onto four pages. And then what we do is we tell the teams to look at those and instead of inheriting them, like take objective 3B1 and inherit that and here's your objective, instead, read them together as a team, put them on the back burner, and then decide what you want to accomplish this year. And then what happened is we had an all-hands meeting where people said, well, yeah, but what if I want to do something that's not on the objectives? Or what if I think one of your objectives is, shall we say, not so smart or not a high priority for us this year? And they asked Dave and I, and they said, so should we align our, what we came up with, with your objectives? And Dave, bless his heart, said, no, 
if you want to do something over and above our company objectives, go for it. And if there's something on our company objectives that you think is not a priority that we thought was a priority, fine. We only ask you one thing. Tell us about it so that we can understand where we went wrong in drawing up our company objectives. Now, if that isn't bottom-up empowerment, I don't know what is. Yeah, that sounds amazing. It sounds like you have some great people at your company to really take advantage of that bottom-up empowerment and make the most of it. Now, now the reality is there's probably a good solid 80% connection between the company objectives and what teams want to do. For sure. We we don't want to inflate the... Right. We're not, we're not that old, that old, uh, we're not taking the Google 10% to hundred percent. That's not what's happening. But what is happening is it's different when it's someone else's idea. For those of you who have children, it is so different when they decide to go up to their room and do homework because they want to get a better grade than you telling them, Hey, it's after dinner. It's time to go do homework. Right. The exact same homework might get done but the attitude, feelings, and growth and quality of the product is significantly different. Absolutely. And I think that also, that just comes back to, as we were talking about before, how working on increasing your employee happiness increases their productivity because when they want to be working on it they're and they're passionate about it, they're going to do better quality work and just and have a better time doing it. Um, and then you're positively impacting their lives. And so people ask me what my goals as a CTO are. And I say, my goal is to delight customers, fulfill employees, and respect our shareholders and stakeholders in that order. And if you structure a company like that, I have found a vast number of other prioritization decisions get made within that framework very easily. That makes a lot of sense. That sounds like that makes it makes leading easy. Just follow that. <laughs> well, yeah, then you get into the details of, you know, of revenue and companies and customers and bugs and all these other things. But yes, it is it is kind of a north star that I like following. Amazing. So, well, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get to touch on that we want to make sure we touch on today? So, I guess there's there's one thing I do want to touch on, which is this concept of how companies should be working today, which is companies should have this small empowered groups where they know what they're doing and there's a connection to the customer. And leadership's role is to enable those groups to do what they need to get done. At the same time, of course, leadership's role is to to guide and create psychological safety and all those things. And just because I'm a technologist, I have a very biased opinion that if you choose the right technology and you give your teams the ability to choose, all your teams don't have to choose the the same technology. If you resist mandates from on high, be they technological mandates or God forbid, even even, process mandates, and you let your teams have the empowerment and context and candor, you will find that most teams want accountability. And so what I find is the thing that I talk to a lot of CTOs about is they're trying to have their teams take accountability. And what we find is if you just step back and you give these people the freedom and the candor and the empowerment 
they actually start taking accountability faster than you could have forced it on them. And so that's my parting thought um, for how to make a company successful. Awesome, man. Well, I'm sure a lot of people listening might want to come come work for you. You seem like an awesome leader. Seems like a great place to work. Are you guys hiring? And if so, where can people go to to find that? We are we are hiring like fiends. <laughs> In fact, we have almost doubled the company during COVID, um, which proves that you could do a lot of things over Zoom and over remote. And uh, we are hiring all over the world. Uh, for me personally. I am hiring engineers in places as diverse as Berlin, Dublin, Barcelona, New York, Austin, uh, Seattle, Vancouver, Sydney, Delhi, Singapore. I mean, that's just the list of places I personally am hiring. So, um, yeah. And by the way, we take remote employees now, too, because of the what we learned during the pandemic. So, yeah, come talk to us. Maybe we're the right place for you. Maybe we're not. But, uh, yeah, come talk to us. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.